0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: In London this morning, Jonathan Loins of Capital Economics, Ed Hyman from Evercore. ISI and with a preview of banks' earnings. Michael Mayo from CLSA will join us as well. But first, Stephen King is here uh, with us in the London studio, a senior economic advisor at HSBC. Great to have you with us. Nice to be here. What uh, What have you learned in the two months since the, the U.S. presidential election about the, uh, uh, the U.S. economy and where things are, are headed? Have you reevaluated any of your uh, initial sort of sense of what it was going to be like after Donald Trump was elected?
2: Well, a little bit. I mean, part of the problem, I suppose, is that the end of last year has some pretty good data anyway, which is probably totally unrelated to Trump, but got people quite excited about what was going to happen during the course of 2017. Uh, We also have a a, a big decision to make about how much of the kind of Trump reflation trade will really materialize in terms of fiscal policy. But I would strongly suggest that um, some of the underlying problems the US economy has are things that can't be dealt with simply through a dose of fiscal policy. Most obviously that productivity growth has been pretty dismal, frankly, for a number of years now, despite all the new technologies we see around us, and without a pickup in productivity growth, which doesn't really respond so well to fiscal stimulus, uh, then you may struggle to see decent growth coming through.
1: When you look at productivity growth, what's dragging it down? What's been the, the principal, not driver, but weight on productivity growth? Well, I think part of the issue, funny enough, is age. It's the fact that populations
2: are aging, their investment preferences are beginning to shift. Uh, You're seeing investors increasingly wanting to buy equities for dividends and share buybacks, not for long-run capital gain, and that's actually changing the behavior of companies themselves. They'd much rather give money back to their shareholders rather than to invest for the long term. And the absence of investment basically means you end up with weaker productivity growth. The other factor, I think, is that QE and zero interest rates have probably distorted the way in which capital markets work. Uh, you lift equity markets, but if you're an unlisted company or a small company not able to access capital markets at all, you don't get much of a benefit. So what tends to happen is that the large, perhaps inefficient companies do pretty well, but that makes the excess capacity
1: to prevent the smaller companies from coming in and shaking things up. Uh, after the election, there was a lot of market enthusiasm. There was also eagerness to hear uh, more clear, concrete policy proposals from the president-elect. Yesterday, his first news conference in, I think, 167 mm-hmm. days. I lent an ear to it, and it didn't seem like we got a whole lot. What are you listening for? What is going to give you more clarity about the direction of the U.S. economy from the president-elect and his team? Well, I'm following him on Twitter, which is very important. Yeah. I mean, 140 <laughs> characters
3: a better, day right?
2: can, yeah. can, can matter, you know, quite a, quite a big way. I think the, the big issue, in one sense, is big focus on reflation currently. But there's a, a bigger issue in one sense in terms of the architecture of the global economy. It, it, does Trump represent a kind of withdrawal of the US from its uh, designing of the international mm-hmm. architecture? Is it a more isolationist story? Mm-hmm. And if it is, uh, does that change all the rules of the game we've been used to over the last 60 or 70 years? For example, the cancellation of the Trans Pacific Partnership might be an indication mm-hmm. that the US is no longer playing that role.
0: I like coming to London. Stephen King of HSBC, Jonathan Loins of Capital Economics. Say
1: so he he's getting Hyman, heated out there.
0: Edward Hyman yes. is in London. We will speak to him on the Spectrum phone line here in a bit. Edward Hyman of Evercourt ISI. Uh, Mr. Mayo will join us from CLSA on American banks. I'd listen. Tell me the nudge here of the the summation of HSBC's calls. A lot of people would say you, you invented or Certainly refine the modern voice of HSBC research. And your your house, without question right now, has the most interesting house call because it's a set of outliers. You've got a weak sterling, weak yeah. U.S. tenure, interesting international economics, an Asian twist. In the meetings that, that you observe as you write your book from a distance, maybe, how does HSBC get to this interesting set of? of outlier calls?
2: Well, we started off, I think, a while ago thinking about the world um, in a more sort of Japanese way than perhaps many people did. And we thought that we were facing a world whereby, particularly in the West, growth was much lower than had been the case in the past, partly because of the soft productivity gains. Also because of high debts, you're gonna see much more disinflationary pressures. And what that basically meant was that the macro policies that would normally be effective will be a whole lot less effective. Once you reach those kinds of conclusions, Everything else begins to fall into place a little bit easier, particularly the call cool on the, the Treasury market. Um, then you also got a, a political issue, which is that if you have a situation where globalization appears no longer to be working quite so well, and this is particularly true after the financial crisis, you start to see uh, pressures coming through uh, for more isolationist mm-hmm. nationalist policies. And Of course, that feeds directly through into Brexit and also perhaps to some of the debates we're going to have this it's year economic on that kind of growth as well, yeah. yes, because of course, yeah. if you're seeing a kind of dislocation, then things become more negative. I mean,
0: this this it's fascinating. It's an honor to talk to HSBC research today after what we witnessed yesterday in yeah. Washington. Kevin Cerulli with that important interview with Ms. Conway coming up in this hour as well.
1: Uh, I wanted to ask you just we were talking with Simon Kennedy, our Brexit editor yesterday yeah. about the G7 and the G20, and it got me wondering about the future of multilateral institutions like that, like the World Bank and the IMF as well. When you when you have this uh, revised vision of the of the world. Where do institutions like that fit in? Well, part of the problem is that these institutions mostly were
2: designed in 1944 at Bretton Woods, and they were designed really for the victors um, in the Second World War, plus also the country they wanted to bring back into the fold thereafter, most obviously Germany and Japan. Uh, well, of course, has changed enormously over the last uh, 30 or 40 years as the rise of the emerging markets, particularly East Asia, particularly China, and also mm-hmm. India. And those countries are not really involved in the IMF, they're not really involved in a significant way, these international institutions. And importantly, China is now designing its own yeah. institutions, AIIB, mm-hmm. uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. These are all China-led right. institutions, got nothing to do with the US.
0: Uh, I want to rip- script here is this is the day where we really begin to turn to our davos coverage and folks our team getting ready for all the radio coverage and what david will be doing back in new york and the television uh, coverage as well my phrase i come up with a phrase every year davos distracted davos bewildered blah 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 (laughs) this year it's populism trumps Davos.
2: Nice. What
0: will be the shadow? I don't know if it's nice or not. I'm just trying it out. What, tell me what the shadow of Mr. Trump will be in Happy Valley in Switzerland.
2: Well, there's an odd thing about all this, which is that um, you know, Trump in one sense is exactly the antithesis of of uh, or the opposite of, of anything that uh, uh, Davos really represents. Uh, He's an isolationist, he's not someone who's particularly engaged in connecting with other countries elsewhere in the world. He looks for a narrative that blames other countries for uh, the difficulties that the US might be experiencing. And you go back to Klaus Schwab and the spirit of Davos, the sense of trying to connect people together, then in one sense Trump um, and his success in the election represent something very, very different. Um, so, it's uh, interesting, if you, this is sort of a literary uh, experience. If you go back to Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, which of course is set in Davos uh, in the, just before the First World War, it's exactly the same kind of story in that particular mm-hmm. book. He talks about the way in which people gather in Davos, you know, partly for tuberculosis, of course, but they're looking down at the world below them, thinking how odd is the world. There are kind of an elite who are in Davos in a different kind of way, um, but uh, they're disconnected from the rest of the world. And in many cases, Davos has become disconnected, and Trump, in one sense, represents an attempt by
1: U.S. voters to reconnect. Yeah. Xi Jinping will be there, the president of China, yes. for the first time. It'll be interesting to hear from him his reaction to, to all of this. Help us understand sort of what, what the consequences would be if Donald Trump follows through with his plan to label China a, a currency manipulator. What's, what's China? How is China going to react uh, to the changing world come January 20th? Well, there's
2: a very odd position for China in many ways, which is that, on the one hand, it doesn't like the whole issue of... Potential threatened tariffs. On the other hand, with the abandonment of TPP, suddenly Asia becomes ever more China's own backyard. Um, and that really matters because China has this regional comprehensive economic partnership, a potential trade deal it can uh, un- unveil and, and push through to other countries in Asia. Other countries in Asia may not be particularly encouraged about signing up to it, but if it's the only game in town, they're likely to end up doing so. So I think that China, in one sense, will be thinking, well, this is great because as the U.S. withdraws, uh, the pivot to Asia doesn't work quite as strongly as was threatened under Obama. We've got some more room to manoeuvre, mm-hmm. so we, we might lose out in the international global arena. We gain in the oh. regional arena in Asia.
0: Stephen King, thank you so much for the time today. Stephen King is with uh, HSBC. and Tom Keene in London, uh, a spirited city, certainly uh, G- uh, June 24th, David, did not look like now. There was a uh, quiet over the city, I remember, the morning after Brexit. And it is back to a vibrancy that is uh, superb. Jonathan Loins with us with Capital Economics, Roger Boodle's Capital Economics. We thank Mr. Boodle for attendance uh, here a number of uh, days ago. You're running the day-to-day grind for Capital Economics. <laughs> Have you changed your models a lot off of the trump election
4: uh no we haven't changed our models um we have factored in uh some boost to the u.s economy from the likely fiscal stimulus that we think will be delivered towards the end of the first half of next year um that's from the tax cuts we're not expecting much in terms of the infrastructure spending proposals i think they will face more uh, resistance in congress um but we've pushed our forecast for the U.S. economy up from 2% GDP growth this year to 2.7% GDP growth. And we're expecting the Fed to tighten a little bit more quickly, uh, mm-hmm. partly in response to that additional boost.
1: I was interested reading your most, most recent notes uh, about a line about how the media and commentators are sort of misapprehending uh, the effects of, uh, of weaker sterling. You're, you have an outlier sense of that. What's your, what's your argument there that we're kind of getting that wrong?
3: Uh, well,
4: I mean, the drop in the exchange rate is partly about uh, concerns about the impact of the Brexit sure. vote on the economy, and you know the way that the Monetary Policy Committee will respond to that by keeping interest rates lower, perhaps than otherwise, particularly relative to other central banks like the Fed. Um, but it's also potentially a fairly powerful shock absorber for the economy, um, which is something we've always argued even before the referendum, uh, and I think that's become very clear over recent months, both in terms of the boost that it's given to the stock market, which of course has some positive uh, macroeconomic effects more broadly, but also we've seen it coming through in terms of stronger export orders in the industrial surveys, and that I think is helping to support sentiment and activity in the export-related parts of the economy as well. There is an adverse impact, of course, which is higher inflation, um, and that is going to have a a negative effect on consumer spending growth Mm -hmm. over the coming quarters, but I don't think it'll be too disastrous.
1: What's your inflation outlook now for the U.S.?
4: Uh, For the U.S., we're expecting inflation to pick up a little bit more quickly than the markets are currently anticipating. We felt for a while that the economy was operating relatively close to capacity, uh, particularly in the labor market, and therefore that we were going to see some pick up in pay pressures feeding through into core inflation pressures as well. And that's one of the reasons why we think that the Fed will tighten a bit more aggressively than the markets are currently anticipating over the next year or so.
0: Greg Villiers has just published on the going-ons of Washington yesterday. And one of his headlines is Trump is not a politician, he's a CEO. Bring that over to the United Kingdom. Is Theresa May a politician or is she going to be acting like a CEO with the jumble that is Brexit?
4: I think so far she's behaved very much like a politician. I mean, you know, some might say she's there largely by default because she kept her head, (laughs) you know, relatively down during the Brexit run up. So in that sense, you could say that was you know a pretty political development. Um, I think in terms of um, what's going to happen over the next year or so, in terms of actually triggering Article Fifty, negotiating what we hope is going to be the best deal possible for the UK, trying to sort of achieve the best trade-off between perhaps some more control over immigration, but also. Uh, continued access in well, some form or another to the single market. She's going to have to be a very skillful politician. Well,
0: skillful. I, this is where I want to go. David, you're much better at the so jump in. But does, does, does the Prime Minister, a Mr. Trump and the image of Mr. Trump, does the Prime Minister have to, quote-unquote, knock heads around?
4: I talked about knocking heads around. <laughs> I'm not sure she's in a position to do that. I'm sure our European partners won't, uh, won't, you know, won't accept that she's in a position to do that. But clearly... Uh, what we're trying to do, or what the government is going to try to do, is get the best trade-off between, as I say, some increased control over immigration, uh, perhaps some reduction in regulation coming from the European Union onto the UK economy, but also retaining as much access as we can to the single market, or at the very least uh, preserving a strong trading relationship with our European partners. I happen to think that Um, she's got a good chance of achieving that actually. I think the the noises that are coming from our European partners are reasonably encouraging. They're not all as one of course. France is taking a rather harder line than Germany. But generally speaking, Mm -hmm. I think the rest of the EU recognises the importance to them as well as to the UK of of maintaining a strong relationship.
0: Keep talking, you're making sterling stronger. (laughs) (laughs) Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. I first read Ed Hyman. This is a few years ago. It's C.J. Lawrence, where he literally invented chart, paragraph, Chart. He dovetails thought and wisdom and economics into what is really going on in the economy. Like no one, of course, Ed Hyman of ISI, Evercore ISI. Ed Hyman joins us from uh, London. I might note his. Uh, Public affairs with the Economic Club of New York, and also his support of Bowdoin College as well. Ed, wonderful to have you with us. Tell me about Trump economics. The reassuring words from you are important. How will America adapt and adjust to Trump economics?
5: There are three. There are three. Tom, in my view, there are three vectors that it works through. One is the conventional, like a tax cut or repatriation, uh, infrastructure spending, defense spending. The second is deregulation that can happen quickly, uh, is animal spirits. I saw on Bloomberg, which I cannot live without, uh, a story this week that uh, farm farmers' optimism has soared. It went from 92 two months ago to 132. So there are three channels, the regular channels, the deregulation, and animal spirits.
0: Ed, when I look at all of this, what we know is on page 28, of your acclaimed newsletters and folks we protect the copyright of our guests we're not going to send you out the ISI literature don't ask for it you'll have some obscure railroad shipping chart what's the chart right now that shows Ed Hyman optimism on the American experiment what inside baseball market chart gives you enthusiasm for economic growth
5: well there's one that stands out like crazy Uh, earlier this week the Small Business Optimism Index came yes. out, and it's been lackluster all along. I'm sure you've reported it, and it just surged. It went way up uh, in December. So that, along I mentioned the optimism, but the small business cinema, which is where you get the jobs number, that has really spiked up. That's the chart of the week.
1: Ed Hyman, let me ask you about trade by all accounts from a lot of the guests that we talked to on this program. That's the biggest X factor going forward here. How concerned are you about trade policy? And as you forecast out, uh, how much of a drag could that be if we see more tariffs, if we see more protectionism here in the U.S.? Uh, What kind of effect do you see that having on the U.S. economy?
5: It's just a major risk, pure and simple. I think the U.S. economy, I listen to your show all the time. I think the U.S. economy is doing better than you guys portray. I, I travel around the U.S., almost every city I go to is doing really well. So I think the U.S. economy is doing, is doing fine. So if we have drags from the dollar going up or interest rates going up or trade, I think the U.S. economy can take it. Uh, but I find this a, mm-hmm. a, pretty, a, a pretty fuzzy area and of concern.
0: Ed, when you look at uh, the economy, C plus I plus G plus NX, all are looking for increased investment, and yet productivity challenges are within the statistics. What indications do you see that will actually get investment that will lead to jobs that will lead to wage growth?
5: Well, we've been having, Tom, as you know, we've been having jobs, jobs, jobs for seven or eight years now, and now wages—that was that was last week—but you know, wages are now moving up. So that's all coming together. Uh, but proactivity is still uh, obviously a major negative. My guess uh, is that if the economy picks up, uh, proactivity will pick up with it simply because people are selling more, serving more, flying more, driving more, mm-hmm. and it'll be a bit of a headache, But it will look better for a little bit. No. And then we'll find out years down the road. Uh, on the CapEx, uh, we'll see at the animal spirits... Right that I mentioned earlier, get CapEx to pick up. I've seen plenty of evidence it's picking up, uh, but it's still lackluster.
0: Okay. Ed Hyman, thank you so much with Evercore ISI. We're thrilled that he could join us uh, in London today. This is Bloomberg. Begin the bank earnings season, I believe J.P. Morgan, tomorrow. Joining us now, a gentleman who's given us just years of perspective, Michael Mayo with uh, CSLA. Michael, good morning. When I look at uh, the banks, they're, I guess, banking on a Trump reflation. I had a chart today showing curve flattening, a bit of an ebb here rolling over of the good news of November 8th for the curve How do you frame that within the earnings you'll see now and in the coming years? Can you just say reflation and it's good for banks?
3: Well, Tom, uh, tomorrow is a big day. You have three large banks reporting their fourth quarter and four-year 2016 results, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. And this is a big day in terms of three $2 trillion banks reporting their results. And I have two words that sum up my view of these results, and those two words are, "Who cares?" Uh, you have a lot of noise. You have a lot of information. You have hundreds of pages of information that will be disclosed tomorrow. But I think it's more about looking ahead. And as you, uh, you conveyed, you know, interest rates, uh, along with, you know, regulation, revenue, credit costs, capital levels, capital markets, and. The President elect Donald Trump, those are much far bigger impacts on the, uh, the outlook for banks than any one quarter. And I think the U.S. banking industry is at a unique inflection point. Uh, banks are on the doorstep from transitioning from value destruction to value creation. And when we say that on Wall Street, we talk about returns exceeding the cost of capital earning your cost of capital. The U.S. banking industry has not Uh earned its cost of capital for the last decade. We think over the next year or two they will, and this will be only the second time in 25 years that will be the case.
1: Mike, what kind of insight are we going to get from these banks about what they're thinking when it comes to regulatory reform in Washington, D.C.? In other words, you have the possibility of a policy change. Are we going to see them reckoning with that in the statements on the calls
3: tomorrow? Well, I, I, that is the main question tomorrow. What is the outlook? What's the impact of the uh, the new Trump administration if they pull back uh, some of the regulation from Dodd-Frank? Will banks be allowed to take more risk? Will the infrastructure spending lead to additional loan growth? What about the change in the interest rate environment? So those are going to be the questions. Have you seen animal spirits kick in yet? You know, We think you will see some of the impact of animal spirits on the fee revenues at banks. Uh, you've seen volumes um, and values increased in the fourth quarter. If you look at the S&P, it was up 3% in the fourth quarter. Equity volumes were up 7%, and fixed income volumes were up over 10%. That's versus the third quarter. So you're going to see some of that benefit, especially in the capital market results. On the other hand, traditional bank lending, which is still more than half the bank revenues, you shouldn't see as big an impact from that yet. Yeah, that, that's to come. Now that the 10-year the has gone up, uh, it's come down recently a little bit, but versus, you know, the election, is, it's come up. Uh, loan growth mm-hmm. hangs in there. So you're seeing, you know, at the beginning of a bottoming yeah. – and what's been some sluggish revenues.
0: Michael Mayo, CLSA uh, with us. Mike, I look at Bank of America, and just to pick a line, operating income, 24 billion, 33 billion before the crisis, they crater to 5 billion, they build it back. Michael Mayo throws things, they throw things at you, et cetera. 24 billion, 23 billion, 24 billion, the last three fiscal years. But are they a growth company? Can they add operating income from here?
3: Well, Bank America is a microcosm of the U.S. banking industry at large. Revenue growth for U.S. banks has been the worst this decade in 80 years. Mm. But that's been the case for a few years, and we think the banking industry is going to break out of that. Uh, You've had 2 percent revenue growth for the last four years. We think that would be 4 percent for the next four years before any benefit – from a Trump bump, so you could get to the uh, upper single digits potentially. So is that a growth company? It's certainly growth compared to where the industry's been this decade.
1: How quickly can these big banks maneuver based on what results have been? So you've got a fixed income up, stock trading revenue up. Are we going to see change to the the contours of these banks, where they're putting people as a result of that? How long does it take for them to make uh, fundamental changes to how they operate?
3: Well, one thing we know is that the U.S. banks are positioned – uh, favorably versus European banks. European banks are uh, on their, you know, on their heels. Uh, they don't have the same capital and balance sheets to deploy as the U.S. banks. And so, you know, that that that's for certain. Um, we think the banks are going to keep their expense culture. There's been a lot of fits and starts. We do think revenue growth will improve, but still not be at the level of a couple decades ago. So you get better revenue growth with better expense control at the same time. Having said that, if you, animal spirits really kick in, then you could see Wall Street, you know, hiring a few more people in certain areas.
1: When you look at, the, you mentioned the European banks, is, are, are there lessons to be learned by the American banks as they watch what's playing out in Europe?
3: Well, I think the lesson for the European banks is raise capital when you can. It's really amazing that capital levels are as low as they've been and you didn't have major capital raises by the European banks uh, since a decade ago. U.S. banks have increased tangible equity by $700 billion, increased cash by one trillion, and increased the core deposits, core funding by three trillion. These are astronomical figures. This is the biggest buildup of mm-hmm. tangible equity, cash, and deposits in U.S. Uh-huh. banking history, and that's created the most resilient U.S. bank balance sheets yeah. in a generation.
0: Give us a buyhold sell here within the group that we're gonna hear from. Where's the Mayo enthusiasm among the too big to too big to fail?
3: Well, Tom, I was on your show uh, last spring when we said we're the most bullish we've been in twenty years. Um, this is the first time uh, in over twenty years that we've recommended all the five to six largest banks. Um, so we are not saying, you know, outright sell for anything right now. And, you know, bank stocks are up 50% from their lows. We think there's another 50% to go over the next three years. But we certainly like Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, and Bank America. We're still positive. Morgan Stanley, we think Goldman Sachs, goes to an all-time high Brent, in the next 6 to 12 months. What, is,
0: what does Mr. Corbett do to change the second derivative and critically, more importantly, forget about the tactical, the more strategic first derivative of Citigroup? What's his to-do list?
3: As bullish as we are, uh, you know, one message to the banks is don't confuse brains with the bull market. And just because the, the Ray outlook and GDP might get better, um, that doesn't mean you're able to sit on your hands. And not all banks will be earning their cost of capital at the same time. We think some, you know, banks hit that magic level, you know, they did it in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. But for Citigroup it could still be three, four years away. So we do think that Citigroup needs to take more control of its destiny and we think they should Consider selling off more assets. They've shrunk a lot. They've gone a long way, but they haven't gone far enough. And at some mm-hmm. point, if you can't earn your cost of capital, we have to say, is this the right strategy? Is this the right management team to get it done? So we'll still have pointed questions, you know, for Citigroup. Uh, they don't I, report tomorrow; they report next week.
0: Excuse me. There's never been a moment where Mr. Mayo did not have a pointed uh. question for anybody in a suit and tie at the bank. Michael Mayo, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated with CLSA and timely observations there on uh, Citigroup. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. SIPC